Thanks for tuning into this week's message. For more resources and information about Cedar Valley, please visit cvchurch.org. Sometimes there, there, there are people who, who want to be critical of Christians. And if you're a Christian, you know this. And, and there, there's some easy criticisms. Sometimes they will say, well, Christians are hypocrites. And I kind of go, that's kind of a good point. Christians are hypocrites, you know. I mean, sometimes we, we talk about one thing, we say one thing, but that's not what we do. We do something totally different. But then I also kind of go, yeah, but we're kind of always going to be hypocrites to be truth, truthful. Because... I'm going to screw up. It's just a fact. I'm going to mess up, and it's not what I really believe, but I just lost it in a moment. I messed up, you know. So there's that criticism. Sometimes they'll say, well, you Christians, you're judgmental. And I kind of go, yeah, it's kind of true. Christians have just been harsh and judgmental at times. And it's just true. We've got to own that. But I'll also say this. Sometimes I think it's going to oftentimes feel that way because we are going to stand for truth and we're not going to apologize for that necessarily. It is the way we go around it, but it's kind of a fair criticism. And then there's one other criticism, though, that I hear commonly, and that is this. You Christians, you're narrow-minded. You're narrow-minded. You think it has to be your way. You think it has to be your way. And in particular, here's what we're narrow-minded about. We would say this, and they would ask the question, why is it only Jesus? We would say, it's only Jesus. Neil, don't, don't all roads lead to heaven? If I'm just good, what if, I, what if I worship Allah or I worship Buddha or I worship Confucius? Or I, don't all roads lead to heaven? And this is where I'm just going to say, mm, nope. And this is where as Christians, on, on this, in this regard, that may seem narrow-minded to people. But we're going to address that very topic this morning. So I would say this. If you're here this morning, you say, I'm not really a follower of Jesus. And I've wrestled with that, Neil. I like being part of the conversation, but I wrestle with that. Don't all roads lead to heaven? Can't I just be a good person? Does it have to be about Jesus? If, you're, if, you're, if you don't call yourself a follower of Jesus, I think you want to stay tuned in because we're going to talk about that exact topic this morning and why. And if you're a longtime follower of Jesus, because here's what frustrates me about followers of Jesus sometimes. We know what we're supposed to believe, but we don't know why. We can quote it for you. We can quote the mantra. We can, we can give you all the rhetoric, but we don't really know why. And I think that's actually very dangerous when we know what and we don't know why. And so this morning, if you're a longtime follower of Jesus, but you wouldn't have the answer for that, I'm going to say you ought to stay tuned in because we'll talk about exactly that topic this morning of exactly why Jesus is the only way. Okay, so we're in the book of Ruth. We've been in the book of Ruth for just a bit. Ruth chapter 3 is where you're going to want to turn this morning. It's the eighth book into the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, right? If you get to 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, you've gone too far. And it's only four chapters. It's just a tiny little book. And so you're going to want to turn there. And then when you get there, I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet as I read this. And, and if you're newer, just know this. We don't do the up-down thing the whole morning. It's not just this up-down exercise. But what we do is when we read our primary text, we stand. And the reason is it's very symbolic for us. It just says, we believe this is God speaking. I'm starting in verse 1, chapter 3. One day, Naomi says to Ruth, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you'll be provided for. Boaz is a close relative of ours, and he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women. Tonight... He'll be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Verse 3. Now do as I tell you. Take a bath, put on perfume, and dress in your nicest clothes. Then go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he's finished eating and drinking. Be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He'll tell you what to do. Verse 5. I'll do everything you say, Ruth replies. And so she goes down to the threshing floor that night and follows the instructions of her mother-in-law. Verse 7. 
After Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Then Ruth comes up quietly, uncovers his feet, and lays down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman laying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I'm your servant Ruth, she replies. Spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful that we have the opportunity to come and worship the God of creation, the almighty God, the all-powerful God, the all-knowing God, the all-wise God, the God who is righteous and holy and just, but at the same time is good and compassionate to us. We thank you that you are that God. We worship you this morning, and we continue to worship you as we study your word. We're grateful that you've given us this. You didn't, you didn't just turn us loose and And hope we'd figure it out. You gave us this instruction. You reveal yourself to us through this, through your word. And so Holy Spirit, my prayer right now, my ask is that you would do exactly that. That as we worship you in your word, that you would reveal to us the very character, the very nature of God, the very character of Christ. Do that. Speak into our lives right now, God, in a meaningful way. Reveal to us who you are. Draw us to you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you guys can have a seat. So if you've been around, you know this. This is our third week. We've been in the book of Ruth. Ruth is a tiny little book. And what I've said is this. You need to understand this. It's a snapshot. This is, this is a book taken in the days of the judges. It's, it's written during that time. And the Holy Spirit took a snapshot, put it in the Bible. And the reason that he put it in the Bible is to re- reveal to you and I certain aspects of the character and nature of God. And this morning, you're going to see the very character of Christ. As you see it now, I'll give you just a quick review. Chapter 1, verse 1 said this. This is when we started a couple weeks ago. Very first verse of the book. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. You know this already if you've been here, right? If you've watched online, that the days when the judges ruled, it was a very wicked time in Israel's history. It was a very dark and bleak time. And what it meant was this. If you go to the book of Judges, chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 18, chapter 19, chapter 21, they all say this, that the days when the judges ruled, everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Folks just did whatever they thought was right. That's what was going on in Israel. It was a very wicked time. And because of that, it says there was a severe famine that came upon the land. The book of Deuteronomy, God told the Israelites this. Listen to me. Follow after me. Listen to me. Worship me. Don't stray away. And I will bless you. But he says, be careful. Because if you do, if you go and worship other gods, if you stray away, if you turn away, God says, I'll stop the heavens. It will produce no rain. And the land will produce no harvest. Hello, there's a famine. That's exactly what's going on. That's all you have to know. It's a really dark time. And then we get introduced to a man named Elimelech. Elimelech and his wife, Naomi, and their two sons, Malon and Kilion. They go, they don't just leave the promised land, which you would never do. But they leave the promised land and they go to this nasty place called Moab. Moab, is, it's, it's named after, its namesake is the product of a drunken and incestuous relationship. And that's where they went. The Moabites were Satan worshipers. They were the arch enemies of Israel. Now question, why did they go there? Life might be easier for them. Might be a little more comfortable. Might find a better job. Might be able to have a bigger house. Our kids might go to better schools. You name it. But they went there for comfort. That's why they went. They left God's land of blessing. And they went to nasty Moab. Right? Well, things just keep going downhill. Just when things get darker, 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 darker. 
Within 10 years, well, first of all, their boys, Malon and Killian, had married two Moabite women, which would have just frustrated their parents. But within 10 years, Elimelech, Malon, and Killian all died. I mean, it got even darker. Now, Malon and Killian had, had, had married, and so now it's just Ruth, uh, Naomi. She's on her own. And finally, Naomi hears that back in Israel, back in Bethlehem of Judah specifically, that the famine was coming to an end. And so she decides she's going to return. It's the first glimmer of light that we've even had in the entire book. Just kept darker, 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 and she decides she's going to return. And the two girls just say to her, hey, we'll go with you. And she says, no, you girls don't want to go with me because I don't have any more sons. There's no one for you to marry. And the one girl, Orpah, she finally says, okay, I'll stay here in Moab. And the other girl, her name is Ruth. And Ruth says, no, I'm going with you. And Ruth makes quite the declaration. Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And she says this, where you go, I'll go. And where you live, I'll live. And your people will be my people. And most importantly, she makes this declaration. Your God will be my God. And we find out that it's not just lip service. She starts doing things that says she now worships the God of Israel. She has made the God of Israel her God. And she begins to live that way. And then we see them finally, they return. And they get all the way back to Bethlehem. And everybody's excited. And it just made me think, church, are we excited when folks come back? Folks have just wandered off, they strayed off. Are we excited when they come back or are we judgmental? We say, well, yeah, I, I knew you'd, you know, it just, it, I loved seeing the fact that they were excited. And so they come back and they're excited and they came back right at the beginning of the harvest season, which was the season of blessing. And at the end of the day, what we said is this, that a life once destroyed by sin, because that was Naomi, that's where she was at. But when she returned, we said, can always be raised up and blessed again. She returned at the season of blessing. And then we got into week two and we were introduced to a man named Boaz. Boaz is a close relative of Naomi's, a husband, but she was a close family relative. We find out that Boaz is an influential man and a wealthy man. And the name Boaz means strength. And we think it very possibly even meant strength of character, like this was a man of character. And instantly, as Ruth is going to work in his fields, he notices her and he begins to show her kindness. Kindness way beyond what he would need to do. It was kindness upon kindness. It was grace. It was way above anything she deserved. And he was gracious and gracious and gracious and gracious and gracious to her. And the thing that was so cool is as he's being gracious to her, now she's a have. She's a got. She's got stuff. She's got grain. She's doing well. But the last verse of that chapter says this. All the while, she lived with Naomi. Now, why would she do that? She doesn't need Naomi. Naomi's not technically a blood relative. She's not kin. And the answer we said was this, because grace is more like a recycling bin than a storage bin. The, the grace isn't something we put in a storage bin. It just Maybe it'll come out again someday. Maybe, no, grace is like a recycling bin. It goes into our lives and it just naturally comes out. Remember? You said that. You said it out loud. You remember that? And, and we saw that's what grace really does. Grace comes out as something beautiful that when God's grace comes into it, it just, it just goes out. That's just the natural. Okay, now you get into chapter 3, and chapter 3 starts out like this. One day, Naomi says to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, former, you know, married to her son, my daughter, it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you will be provided for. Translation, girl, we got to get you married. That's what she's saying. That's exactly what she's saying. we got to find a permanent home for you so you'll be provided for. Now, when you think about this, do you think Naomi has a plan? Do you think she's thinking anything? Newsflash, everybody, she's a woman. Okay, here's what she says. Boaz is a close relative of ours. We got to get you married. Boaz 
is a close relative of yours. And he's been very kind by letting you gather with his. Listen, we got to get you married. Boaz is not only a close relative. He's been really nice to you. Like Ruth, do the math, girl. Like he's been really nice. Right. And then she has more plans. She says, here's the deal. Tonight, tonight he's going to be winnowing barley at the threshing floor. Just means this. What you would do is you'd cut grain, cut grain, cut grain. And then the, the men would, and then the women would come, and they'd tie it up in the sheaves, we said. And then, then you'd take the grain, and it'd eventually dry. And then you take that out, and you go up to the threshing floor, and you lay it out on the threshing floor. And maybe you've got a big ox. You've got a couple of oxen. They come on, and they just walk on it like this, right? That's, that, that could be threshing. Maybe you've got a, a, a large stone or some tool that they would pull, and they just run over it, and it breaks the grain off the stock. Okay, that's the threshing, and you would do that on the threshing floor. But when the threshing is over, now you do the winnowing. And what you do with the winnowing is you take your large pitchfork, whatever type of tool they had, and you pitch it like this, and you toss it into the air. And now the chaff blows off because it's been busted up, and all that's left that drops down is the grain. But you do this on the threshing floor. Now think about it. You want a place that's pretty breezy. So normally the threshing floor is not right there where you live. You all live right here. There's the threshing floor. No. It's out of ways from you a little bit. And ideally, it would be on top of a hill where the wind would blow. You know what I mean? Toss it up in the air. It just separates everything. Or it might be at an area where there's near, you're kind of near a cliff type thing where the wind is going to blow. So that's where he's going to be. He's going to be winnowing out on the threshing floor. She says, remember, Boaz, here's where he's going to be tonight. And then she says, now, do as I tell you. Okay, here's her plan. Now, you got to understand this. She, Naomi, gets men. She gets men. She'd been married to one and she got two boys. Okay, she thinks men. Here's what she says. Take a bath, put on some perfume, and dress in your nicest clothes. She gets men. And so she's saying this, girl, first you got to take a bath, you got to get cleaned up. Then get some perfume on and then dress in your nicest clothes. She's probably got two outfits. She's probably got the clothes that she wears all day to work in and then she might have an extra, an extra dress. She's like, put that dress on, right? And then she says, then go out to the threshing floor. But here's the deal. When you get there, don't just run up and go, hey, Boaz. No, no, she says, don't let him see you. Not until, he, now, again, she understands men. Let him eat first and let him drink first. That's it. She gets men. Like, make sure his belly's happy and let's get a few drinks in him. That's what she's saying. Be sure to notice where he lies down and then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He'll tell you what to do. This uncover his feet thing is really, really interesting language. Some people read this and they think it's a sexual euphemism. Oh, it's got to be some crazy sexual euphemism for the day, uncover his feet. And it would be easy to think that. Here's the question. Could it possibly mean something like that? Could it be some sexual euphemism? And the answer is it could it could mean that. But this is why I always tell you that when you read the Bible, context is so important. Because when you read the book of Ruth, all you see about both Boaz and Ruth is their character. That's all you see. In a day when nobody is following after God, those two individuals separately are following after God. We saw the way that Boaz greeted the workers when he went out in the morning. We saw uh, Ruth's humility. This is another really good example. Now, you know this, that we'll get into this in a little bit, that because of the laws of, uh, of brothers. So, for instance, let's just say that my brother uh, is married and they have no children. 
and my brother dies. It is my responsibility as the next closest relative. This is written out in the book of Deuteronomy and the book of Leviticus. It is my responsibility to go and marry my brother's wife, to give her a child, and then that first child, when, when, uh, uh, when, when everyone dies, the land stays in that family and not mine. Got it? That is given in the law. And so it would be very easy for Ruth to go to a family redeemer like a, like a Boaz and say, hey, here's my right. You marry me and you give me kids. That is my right. It is according to the law. But do you notice what Naomi, the way that she instructs her, and do you notice how Ruth behaves? She's not demanding her rights. She, she's going to lay down at his feet. She's, gonna lay, she, she's saying, girl, don't go in there screaming about your rights. And I would say this, man, beautiful picture of the Christian life. I, I, I want to say this very gently. I want to say this very gently. But in the day that we're living, everybody, the Christian life is not about demanding your rights. Christian life is a life of surrender. It's a call to pick up a cross, not a sword. I didn't mean anything by that. I just thought I'd mention it. So he'll tell you what to do. And Ruth says, I'll do everything you say. So she went down to the threshing floor that night and followed the instructions. She did exactly what Naomi told her. Verse 7. After Boaz had finished eating and drinking, note, and was in good spirits. He's feeling good right now. He goes and he lays down at the far end of the pile of grain and he just goes to sleep. He's probably had a few. He's, he's, he's eaten. He's tired. He lays down and he falls asleep. Then Ruth came quietly. She uncovered his feet and she laid down. Again, she lays at his feet. She submits to him. She's, she's surrendering herself. Got it? Then around midnight... Boaz suddenly wakes up and he turns over. He didn't even notice when she first laid down. He didn't even notice. He's probably, again, I, I don't mean this in a, a dis, disrespectful way, but he's probably had a few drinks and he's eaten. He didn't even know when she had first laid down. Now he wakes up. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Don't you think? Wouldn't that be odd? Like, he's surprised. Of course he's surprised. Who are you? Exactly. That's exactly. He's like, Who's this? Now remember, it's, it's dark. There are no lights. They're on the field. It's like, who are you, he asked. I'm your servant Ruth, she replied. Now she says this, spread the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family redeemer. Again, interesting language. Spread the corner of your, of your covering over me. It's, 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 it's akin to, uh, it's the same language that's used in the book of Ezekiel, where God speaks of the nation Israel, and he says, I will cover you with my wings. I will put my covering over you. You'll be under my covering. I'll protect you. I'll provide for you. And that's what she's saying. Spread the corner of your covering over me. And then she says this, really interesting language. So you should circle this, underline this, highlight this, big star, for you are my family redeemer. And we're going to talk about this just a minute because this is a big deal, family redeemer. You are my family redeemer. Now, to get you to understand this, she's there offering herself to him. She's not offered herself sexually, but she has offered herself. She's basically proposed. And so here's a couple things that we, we got to have a couple things under, uh, of understanding before we go any further. First of all, how many of you had at your schools, did you have Sadie Hawkins? Did you have Sadie Hawkins? 
Nobody, okay. Yeah, a few of you, right? So, so if you weren't familiar with Sadie Hawkins, Sadie Hawkins, that term came around in 1937. There was a comic strip called Lil Abner. The, the, comic, uh, the cartoonist was a man named Al Cap. And in 1937, he draws this up. And, and Lil Abner takes place in this, you know, fictionary uh, town called, was it Dog Patch? I think it was Dog Patch. Is that right, Bill? Thank you. And so they're in Dog Patch. And what they did in Dog Patch every year was they would turn the men, let them just start running, and then they just turn the women after them. And if you caught a man, you got to marry him. That's the way they did it in Dog Patch. And so after, this is what's really interesting to me. So it was the idea of the woman going after the man, the woman getting the man, the woman proposing the man. And that, happened, that comic strip came out in 1937. In 1939, two years later, it's, it's uh, recorded that over 200 colleges and universities had a Sadie Hawkins event. And it just meant the girls ask out the guys. Now, we did not have Sadie Hawkins at our school. We had twerp. And just, who had twerp? Okay, nobody. Okay, Pastor Amos did. So I brought this up at a meeting. Tim, did you have one? Did you? So I brought that up at a meeting, and everybody looked at me like I was from another planet. And Pastor Amos goes, we were talking about Sadie Hawkins. He goes, I don't know what Sadie Hawkins is. And I explained it. He goes, oh, we had twerp. Right. Twerp stands for the woman is required to pay. That's what we had. It's called, am I right? We had twerp at our school. And so this was the, and this is just, this probably didn't happen at your school. It's so funny. So my school, I don't bring this up for any reason except it's kind of stupid. But at our school, if, if it was during twerp and a girl asked you out, you had to say yes, right? Unless, and this is going to be really obvious, unless you were wearing a kilt. Now, that was the rule, and it was so crazy because I thought, you know, I'm like, well, nobody's going to wear a kilt. True story. My friend Doug wore a kilt every day that week. <laughs> and what's even funnier is if you knew my friend Doug, you'd look at Doug and go, I actually don't think you have to worry about anything. Like, you know, it's just that kind of deal. So anyway, you got to understand, like, when we had it in Twerp, right, in the 80s, right, I was like, oh, that's crazy. That's kind of funny. If it was in 1937, it was a really crazy thought. If you were in ancient Israel, it was even a crazier thought. She's basically there proposing to him and saying, I am available. And the reason she says I'm available is because you are my family redeemer. Very important. Now, let's talk about this just a little bit. So a family redeemer, because we go, what's a family redeemer? A family redeemer is a blood, has to be a blood relative. It's a blood relative who's allowed to buy back for you something that you've tragically lost. That's what it means. A family redeemer is a family member, a family member, has to be a blood relative, who can purchase back for you what you've previously and specifically tragically lost. Now, let's just talk briefly about the qualifications because there are qualifications. Number one, you, you have to be qualified, meaning you have to be a blood relative. Can't be a friend, can't be a buddy. You gotta be a blood relative. That, that, if you're gonna be a family redeemer, you have to be a blood relative. Secondly, you have to be willing. You're gonna find out, spoiler alert, next week you're gonna find this out, that there's actually a closer blood relative than Boaz and that blood relative is not willing to do it. And the reason is, it costs me too much. It'd be too, too great a cost. I'm not willing to do it. So you have to be willing to do it. You gotta take into consideration the cost and you gotta be willing to do it. And then thirdly, you gotta be able, which in that world mostly meant financially able. You have to be financially able, right? You'll see how that works, but you had to be financially able. So you had to be qualified, willing, and able. 
You had to be a blood relative who wanted to, who was willing to, wasn't forced to, and you had to be able financially, or we'll see one where it does mean physically, okay? Now, what were the kinds of things that a family redeemer could purchase? What are we talking about? Number one, we're talking about land. So in Leviticus chapter 25, you go home and read this in your Bibles, Leviticus chapter 25, it lays out the idea that if I had a, a piece of land and I became just financially destitute and I'm really hard up for money and I say, I need money, I can't afford to continue to keep my land, so here's what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna sell my land and I sell it to Pastor Jonas, I sell him my land. That land is not necessarily forever his. It's not, it's not a guarantee. And the reason is because a family redeemer, a blood relative who is willing, would count the cost and was willing and is financially able, can walk right in, buy my land and it no longer belongs to him and they have to allow it. Family redeemer can buy land. Also in Leviticus chapter 25, if you just read a little further, they can purchase freedom. So now I've sold my land and I don't have any money. Not only have I sold my land and I don't have any money, but I'm even more hard up for money. So here's what I do, I sell myself. I sell myself to Pastor Jonas and I say, for the rest of my life, I work for you. I'm your servant, I'm your slave, and he has to pay me for that. I don't necessarily for the rest of my life belong to him because a family redeemer, a close relative, a blood relative, right, who is willing to do it and is financially able can come and purchase me back. He gives him money, he has to let me go. Okay, if you go to Numbers chapter 35, you'll read about justice. In, the, in, the, in ancient Israel, under the law, what would happen is this. If someone murdered someone, their life then had to be taken. We give out the high, it's, it's, it's the most valuable thing is life and you've taken it. And so we have to give you the highest penalty. The highest penalty is your life would be taken. So here's the deal. If somebody murders me. My brother then can be a family redeemer and come and avenge that death. Now he has to be qualified in that he has to be a blood relative. He has to be willing to do it and he has to be able, he has to be able to take that person's life. Okay. Then if you go to Deuteronomy, and if you go to chapter 25 again in Deuteronomy, it's family. And it tells you about how a family redeemer uh, brings, brings back family. And that's the situation that we're looking at, right? If my brother is married and has, you know, no children, if he dies, I as the family redeemer, the close relative, if I'm willing and I'm financially able and able to do it, then I can go in and be the family redeemer. Okay. So a family redeemer is one who buys back for you what you have tragically lost, right? They're qualified, they're willing, and they're able, and they can purchase any of these things, land, freedom, justice, or family. Got that? That's the understanding. She's asked him out. It's kind of been a Sadie Hawkins slash Torp thing. Because he's the family redeemer. Now, there's one other thing that you have to understand to, to, to take out of this story, what we're supposed to take out of it, and this is key. It's the discussion that took place on the Emmaus Road, not the Damascus Road where Paul encountered Christ. This is the Emmaus Road. So here's what happened. Jesus is born. Jesus grows up. Jesus has three years of ministry. The Romans and the Jews grab him and they crucify him. Remember this? They kill him. He's put into the tomb. Okay, Easter Sunday morning, he raises from the dead. They didn't call it Easter, but I mean, you know, what we now call Easter Sunday morning, he raises. However, no one really knows that he's raised from the dead yet. You remember what the disciples said when they went to the tomb? They went, wow, he's risen. No, they didn't. The disciples, even after everything that Jesus had said to them, went to the tomb and they said, who stole the body? They thought somebody stole the body. They still didn't get it. Okay, not everybody knows that Jesus has risen from the dead. There are two disciples and, you know, Jesus had the 12 disciples, but he had hundreds of disciples, people who followed him. Two of those disciples were leaving Jerusalem, where all the hubbub was, 
and they're headed to Emmaus, a village only about seven miles away from Jerusalem. And they're on this walk. These two guys are, we don't know who they are. And these two disciples are walking along and they're having this conversation about everything that's gone on, right? And a guy, I love how the, I love how the scriptures do this. A guy steps onto the road and starts walking with them. It's Jesus. It's the resurrected Jesus. The Bible says God did not allow them yet to see that this was Jesus. A guy walks and he's like, hey, you guys are having a really intense conversation. What's going on here? And these guys look at him like, dude, what rock did you just climb out from under? What do you mean, what are we talking about? Have you been paying attention? There was this guy named Jesus, and we all thought that he was the Messiah. And then eventually the Romans grabbed him, and they killed him, and they put him in a tomb. And this morning they went to the tomb, and it was empty. Like, they're not, they're not getting it, right? And this is Jesus. So then Jesus has got to be frustrated. Jesus then says to them, you foolish people, like, you idiots. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. You guys have not paid attention in your Bibles. Their Bibles would have been the book of Moses, Matthew, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It would have been the prophets that they would have read about, Isaiah, Jeremiah. It would have been all the minor prophets, Hosea, Joel. And then it would have been the books of poetry, the Psalms, right? And he says, you find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in all of the scriptures? Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer? If you've read your Bibles, if you know your Bibles, you've got to know this. The Messiah would have to suffer, would have to be killed, right? For all these, thing, uh, all these things before he could enter into his glory. It had to happen. And then he says this. Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses, first five books, all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus is saying, the Bibles that you guys have been carrying around, now they didn't have the New Testament, obviously, the Bibles that you guys have been carrying around, you would read, all they do is talk about me. They, they talk about me. In particular, what he's telling them is this, the Old Testament screams about me. The Old Testament screams about Jesus. When you read the Old Testament, you should continually ask yourself, what is this telling me about God? What is this telling me about Jesus? How does this foreshadow the Messiah? What kind of God is this God? What kind of person was this Jesus? And how is it that he's God? When you read the Old Testament, he's telling them, the Old Testament screams about Jesus. Here's what you gotta get from this story. Jesus is the better Boaz. When you read Ruth, when you read this chapter, here's what you should be taking home. Jesus is the better Boaz. It's a picture from the book of Judges, a snapshot that the Holy Spirit gave us to know more about the character of God and to know more about Jesus. And Jesus was telling him on the Emmaus Road that the Old Testament screams about me. This book screams to us that Jesus is the better Boaz. Now listen, we knew that the family redeemers had to have three characteristics. They had to be qualified, they had to be willing, and they had to be able. Here's how Jesus is the better Boaz. First of all, Jesus is qualified because he's the God-man. Now listen to how important this is. First, you just have to, when people say, why is it only Jesus? Why is it only Jesus? Why couldn't it be Allah? Why couldn't it be Muhammad? Why couldn't it be Buddhist? Why couldn't it be Confucius? Here's why. Because only Jesus is qualified. And the reason that only Jesus is qualified because he's the God man. Now you should write this down and you should just know this, right? John chapter one, John chapter one, verse one, it says this. In the beginning was the word, capital W, and the word was with God and the word was God. You go, well, that doesn't tell me that Jesus was God. 
Drop down to verse 14. John chapter 1 says that, and then verse 14 tells you who the word is. It says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Question, who was it that was with God from the beginning, that was God, that became human flesh and dwelt among us? That is only Jesus. People say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. You haven't read a Bible. Jesus said it all the time. If you've seen the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Listen, Jesus was the God-man. He was fully God. Now, here's the, and this gets really important, but he was also fully man. And this is crucial that he's man. And I'm gonna show you why in a minute, but just think about this. He was tired. We read where he got tired. We read where he got hungry. We, we saw where he felt compassion. That's a human emotion. Jesus was fully God and fully man at the same time. Now, why is it so important that Jesus was a man? Well, the writer of Hebrews tells us this. Because God's children, that's you and I, are human beings, right? Made of flesh and blood. The son also became flesh and blood. Why? Because only as a human being could he die. You can't kill God. He had to be a human so that he could die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Jesus had to be fully God and fully man. It's only as a man that he could die. Only Jesus was qualified. There is no one else that's qualified. No, no, who else is, and no one else has ever claimed to be God. The prophet Muhammad never claimed to be God. Buddha never claimed to be God. Confucius was never said to be God. Only Jesus, only Jesus was qualified. Secondly, not only was he qualified, but Jesus was willing now look, could there have been other people who might have been willing? Yeah, nobody that was qualified. And no one else is qualified. And here's what's so important about this. Look, Philippians chapter 2, Paul is talking, and he's writing to the church at Philippi, and he says this about Jesus. Look, even though he was equal with God, he didn't grasp equality with God as something to cling to. He wasn't going to say, well, you know, I don't have to do this. I'm equal with God. I am God. He didn't say that. And said, instead, he just laid it all down, laid it all down, willingly gave up all his rights as God. Further, the scriptures tell us this, Jesus speaking says, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it how? Voluntarily, willingly. I willingly lay my life down. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want and I can also take it up again. Jesus was the only one qualified. No one else has ever been qualified. No one else is God man. No, no other man was ever divine. He was also willing, very important. Now think about this. He fully counted the cost. He knew what it was going to be to be here. He knew how he would suffer. He knew that he would die and he was still willing. What if the Savior would have said this? Ah, I get the whole sin thing. I am just not willing. The cost is too high. What if he'd have said that? Not only was he qualified, he was willing. And then finally, Jesus is able and he's able because as God, he has all the power. I mean, we saw all Jesus' power. We saw all of his power. We saw his first miracle. Remember, he came and he turned the water into wine. And you go, that's cool. Made for a better wedding. I get it. Not that big a deal. And then later we saw him in a boat with his fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. And the waves start to whip up. And these are professional fishermen, a lot of them that are in the boat. And they're scared. That's how big the waves are. And Jesus goes, shh, knock it off. And the waves just stop. And professional fishermen say to themselves, that's just weird. Who is this guy? We saw his power over nature. And then ultimately, we saw him cast out demons and conquer sin and death when he walked out of the grave. 
Jesus is qualified, and he's the only one qualified. Jesus was willing to do it. He counted the cost and was willing. He did it voluntarily. Jesus was able because as God, he has all the power. You ask me, why are you Christians so narrow-minded? Listen, the reason we're narrow-minded is because this God has saved us. He's rescued us from hell. He's given us new life. And we want the same thing for everybody because it's available for everybody. So am I narrow-minded? I don't know. I don't have to be right. I want you to have what we have. Right? And so I just want you to know this. That, that every week, if you're new to the church here, we, we always have a big so what. And at the, at the end of the big so what, what I, what I really try to do is say, hey, you slept through most of it. That's all right. Just wake up and get this line and take this home. That's all you need. Right? And so I don't know if you know this, but I wrestle with this every week. And I have a team and we wrestle with it. And we, what I try to do with the big so what is I want to make it sticky. I want it to stick in your head. And there are a couple things that make things sticky. Like word pictures make things sticky. Like I hope you remember like recycling bin, storage bin. I hope you get that. You know, like maybe that picture will just stick out to you. Sometimes what makes things really sticky actually is rhyme. That's right. You, you haven't read it for years, but every one of you could say with me, not on a boat, not with a goat, not in a house, not with a mouse, not in a box, not with a fox. I do not like them, Sam. I am. I do not like green eggs. Like rhyme just makes things sticky. Right? So I tried to make this sticky. and I just wanted to see my thought process. And I went through a number of different big so what's. Like I'm thinking like qualified, willing, and able. Qualified, willing, and able. So I kind of started out with this. Qualified, willing, and able means that Jesus was more than a fable. I was like, yeah, I don't know if that's where I really want to go. You know. And then I thought, well, let's just make it really straightforward. Qualified, willing, and able, take it home and discuss at the table. I thought that... It kind of works, you know what I mean? And then I thought, how costly was the death of Christ? I, I was thinking about the costliness of the death of Christ. And so I said, qualified, willing, and able makes Jesus more costly than cable. And I thought, it's true, you know, I didn't know. And then, and then there was one that was just kind of a reach. This is just me, you know. When I was a kid growing up, I have a great aunt. She's my favorite. And uh, she just had the, she was just like sharp, best sense of humor. And we would just banter back and forth and she could give it and she could take it and I loved her to death and P.S. she makes killer coleslaw you know and I loved her and I remember the last conversation I ever had with her was at a her nursing home I'm telling you what physically she couldn't do it she was all there and she was just bantering it was just good her name Aunt Mabel you can see where this is going qualified willing and able points to Jesus more than Aunt Mabel I thought maybe that's the big so what and I thought no I'm just going to strip this all down this is the big so what that's all you need to know that's it. Qualified, willing, and able. That only speaks of Jesus. It can only speak of Jesus. I don't have to be right. You just need to know this. Why is it only Jesus? He's the only one qualified, willing, and able. That's it. That's why Christians, that's why we sing about Jesus. It's why we talk about Jesus. It's why we preach Jesus. Because it's only Jesus. Why? Because he's the only one qualified, willing, and able. That's it. If you're a follower of Jesus, man, you ought to hold on to that. This is what we do in Christianity a lot of times. We say, hey, you know, this idea of, of relativism in the culture today, this relativism thing is, is crazy. You know, it's what's, what's good and true is what's good and true to you. And, and no, no, no. And then we talk about Jesus and then we say this. But, you know, that's just what I believe. Is it just what you believe or is it truth? See, it's truth. When you say that's just what I believe, you relegate Christianity to relativism. It's not just true because you want it to be. It's true because Jesus is the only one who is qualified, willing, and able. That's it. And so then to kind of 
leads us to the big now. Well, we say we're people of the word. We want to live this way. So the idea is this, because he's qualified, willing, and able, he's the only one, then what we have to do is we have to fully surrender. And I, I want to highlight fully, because that is not fully surrender. It's not an American idea. Because fully surrender, what we do in America is we go, well, I put one foot in, but, I, but I, just in case, I like to, my life is good enough. My life is, qualified, is comfortable enough. I like to just keep this foot over here. And we, we kind of live that way. Because Americans, we're driven by comfort. And the Christian idea, the biblical idea for followers of Jesus is that we fully surrender. I mean, everything. We let go and we surrender everything. Watch, you remember this? You remember what Ruth did? It says, Ruth came quietly. She uncovered his feet and she laid there. She laid there at his feet. That's surrender. That's full surrender. She wasn't claiming her rights. She just said, man, I surrender all of it. I have the right to, no, I'm not gonna claim my rights. I just surrender everything. So here's a question I have for you this morning as we wrap it up. What do you still need to put at the Redeemer's feet? Like Boaz was a family redeemer. Jesus is the redeemer. What do you still have? Now I can just tell you this because I've got a head start on you. I've been studying this for about four weeks and the Holy Spirit has just messed with me a bit about you say you're a follower of Jesus, Neil, but you don't really surrender this. And I, I don't want to be the only one in this room that's miserable. I'd like you all to be miserable with me. I want the Holy Spirit to mess with you. What do you, now let me just throw some things out at you because we're Americans. A lot of times it's a financial thing. It's money. We say, oh, Jesus, I'll give you everything. Don't mess with my checkbook. Don't mess with my credit cards. That's, that's, a, that's, that's not just you. That's not just me. That's an American thing. We're followers of Jesus before we're Americans. So, so maybe for you, it's a financial thing where you just can't let go of your checkbook. Like that, that's very possible. I'm just throwing things out there, right? For some in the day and age that we live, it's our sexuality. It just is. It's our sexuality. We say, well, I'm going to live the Christian life, but I'm not giving up that. And so we're in, we're in sexual relationships when we should not be in a sexual relationship. Anything outside the context of a marriage. You say, well, I don't want to give that up. Maybe it's just in lustful thought. Maybe it's in pornography. It's got to be surrendered. You got to lay that stuff down. I don't know what it is for you. I'm just throwing stuff out there, right? Maybe it's your time. Maybe it's your time where you go, oh man, I'd rather just write a check, but don't ask me to give my time. Don't ask me to serve people. God is saying, well, you got to fully surrender. That, that's, that's the call for followers of Christ. Maybe it's that. Maybe it's, it's that. Maybe, maybe it's your future plans and your dreams. God, I went to school to do this. I got to do this. Or I'm going to go to school and I'm going to do this. And he says, well, check up. Did you ask me? Maybe I got plans for you and I'm going to bless you. But you, 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 my blessings come with obedience to my plan. And so maybe it's that. Maybe you got to surrender your dreams and your plans. Maybe it's that. See, I don't know what it is for you. I know all of my struggles. And there's probably more that I'm not aware of. There's plenty to go around. But I'm just saying, what is it for you? In, uh, I think it's fun, in Mark chapter 14, there's an incident where uh, Jesus is at the home of Simon the leper. He was a man that Jesus radically healed of, of uh, leprosy. And so... Jesus is there at his house and he's reclined. It says he's reclining at his table. And normally when someone came to your house, uh, what you would do is you would 
uh, anoint their head with oil. It was just refreshment. People travel on dusty roads and it was just refreshing, right? And so you'd anoint them with oil. And Mary comes and we believe that this incident, there are two instances like this. We believe this instance was Mary, the sister of Lazarus and uh, Martha. And she owns, she owns uh, an alabaster jar and it's got expensive perfume in it. It's got nard. It's like, this was an investment for a lot of people. It was easy to carry. It was really, really valuable. And it's probably the only thing that she had that was of any value or any real worth. Oftentimes it was passed on in the family. It was that valuable. And she sees Jesus there and she breaks the bottle and she just pours it on his head. Like she didn't try to give him a little bit. You understand what I'm saying? She just said all of it, all of it, Jesus. The only thing that I have that's of any value, the only thing that I have that's of any worth at all in this world, anything, I'm giving it all. It's just all surrendered. So here's the deal, Carly's gonna sing. And I want you to just sit tight for just a second and just reflect, like, what is that thing? Father, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would just speak to our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would minister to us and speak to our hearts. God, convict our hearts. What is that thing? What are we holding back? Holy Spirit, you don't shame us. You don't condemn us, but you're going to convict us. That's what I'm praying for. What is it that we're holding back? Father, reveal that to us even now. 